Retrogram, Revisiting TV Futures from the Past, An Examination of Yesteryear's Television Science Fiction, Fantasy, Spy-Fi, Horror, and Superhero Shows. Commencing, Retrogram. Retrogram number 2214. The Little Black Bags. Welcome once again to Retrogram, the podcast that rolls back the clock on classic TV that falls into the categories of sci-fi, fantasy, horror, superheroes, and spy-fi, engaging in a little bit of prime-time travel and exploring the history of the genre. And for this show, we're doing something a bit different. We're looking at a single story. Don't get me wrong, we'll be talking about several shows, but we have a fairly unusual situation where several shows have told the same story. Not similar stories, but the same story, written by the same author. How does it play out across three different successive decades? There's only one way to find out. Sci-fi writer Cyril Kornbluth was born in New York City on July 2nd, 1923, and created quite a name for himself in the short span of time he had. He was destined for greater things than an absolutely stellar career, but he also died of a heart attack at the age of 34 on his way to interview for the position of the editor of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. Kornbluth began writing at the age of 15, and his work quickly made its way from amateur sci-fi fanzines to professional publications. He was still in his teens when he joined a legendary assemblage of early sci-fi writers known as the Futurians, a group which included such luminaries as Isaac Asimov, James Blish, Frederick Paul, Judith Merrill, Damon Knight, and Virginia Kidd, among others. Cyril formed a particularly close friendship with founding member Frederick Paul, who would later finish and publish Cyril's unfinished stories posthumously. The Futurians were an extremely left-leaning collective for their time, with some genuine communist and Marxist leanings among individual members. They saw a future that depended more upon collectivism than capitalism. Put a pin in that because it's a feature, not a bug, of today's story. A story which was adapted for TV only two years after its publication, and adapted twice more after Cyril Kornbluth's untimely death. A story which had some fairly major details omitted by all three of these adaptations. But it's probably best to discuss those toward the end, so you can judge each iteration of the story on its own merits. So it's time to rewind a lot further than we usually do in Retrogram to the 1950s. Warning. System restrictions prevent time travel prior to the 1970s. Really? Come on, it's just a podcast. Can't we override that? Rerouting power. Stand by. Now That can't be good. Are we done?
Tales of Tomorrow, Season 1, Episode 35, The Little Black Bag, aired Friday, May 30th, 1954, on ABC. Angie is just freshening herself up when her husband shows up. Meet Dr. Fulbright. Washed up, disheveled, and discouraged, he's a doctor who made a mistake, costing one of his patients lives, and now he can't make a living. And Angie's dismissive, belittling ways, they're probably not helping. He hasn't lined up any patients in at least a week, though the problem's been going on longer than that, as Angie complains about the fact that they keep moving to a succession of smaller, cheaper, nastier places as the money runs out. She tells her husband that he could still make money if he was smart, but he's not prepared to dabble in anything underhanded. He leaves bag in hand to go to the pawn shop. If he can't be a doctor anymore, what use does he have for a doctor's bag full of a doctor's instruments? Over the protests of the pawn shop owner, he pawns off the last vestiges of his medical career for a mere 25 bucks or $267.66 adjusted for inflation. But wait, the pawn shop owner has a better idea. A few years ago, another doctor's bag showed up literally on his doorstep. He can't make heads or tails of the instruments inside, and no one's bought it in all that time. He offers it to Dr. Fulbright for five of those dollars, and he'll buy it back if it's not of any use to the good doctor. So now Fulbright goes home with the mysterious medical bag and $20. $214.13 adjusted for inflation. When he returns home and tosses two wadded-up Andrew Jacksons onto the table in front of Angie, she hopefully and encouragingly asks if he robbed a bank. They're such a fun couple. Before they can get into another shouting match, their Italian neighbor frantically knocks at the door. Her child is sick. More like on death's doorstep, to be honest. Dr. Fulbright quickly diagnoses the kid with brain hemorrhaging. The best he can hope for is to make the child comfortable. He goes to open his medical bag. Oh, wait, it's a completely unfamiliar medical bag. That's sure to be a big help. The first thing he finds is a disclaimer inside. For use by authorized personnel only. Used ethically, this equipment shall lose all curative power, and the violator shall be subject to the full penalty of the law. Check your local TV listings for times and always look for the union label. Void where prohibited. The bag also contains an instruction chart that makes medicine seem like child's play. Fulbright quickly figures out what to administer and how much. And suddenly the little girl seems to make a miraculous recovery. Her very grateful mother doesn't have a dime to give Fulbright, but hey, she'll light a candle for him when she gets home. Dr. Fulbright is still slowly processing what just happened. That should have been a fatal condition. Angie's processing the implications a bit faster, and she sees dollar signs, about a million of them. Fulbright sees something more important, though, at least to him. He can heal. He can save lives. But hey, to hell with that. Angie's going to act as his business manager, and she's going to make all the decisions. As he looks over the contents of the bag, he finds an engraved plaque inside. U.S. patent applied for July 18, 2450. Two years pass. Dr. Fulbright has an office again. Angie's calling the shots. When their former neighbor stops by for her daughter's routine checkup, Angie more or less chases them out because she knows they can't pay. 
Despite the fact that they now have a car and a medical practice and a second house in Connecticut, Angie still lords over Fulbright any time he talks about doing anything out of kindness to make the world a better place. He's concerned about that disclaimer, though, that whole thing about ethical use by authorized personnel. He's convinced that someone in the 25th century is keeping tabs on the bag and the uses to which it is put. Fulbright is having serious doubts. He thinks it should be handed over to medical authorities who can ensure that this medical equipment is put to use to benefit the greatest number of people. Does Angie care? Ah, hell no. Next patient, please. You, you look like you've got money. The next patient has a paralyzed arm. Not a problem for the little black bag. It's a miracle. Dr. Fulbright tells her to return tomorrow for a follow-up. Angie tells her to expect a bill. Fulbright tells Angie to charge her no more than 50 bucks, and he tells her he's already sent a letter to the medical authorities to alert them to the presence of the bag from the future. It should be used to help the entire human race, not just a guy with a greedy wife. A guy with a greedy, homicidal wife. She grabs one of the instruments and stabs him in the back with it. As she rants out loud about changing her name, moving across the country, and getting away with it all, she grabs the bag and... It's full of hair? The instruments are all gone. And someone's knocking at the door because it sounds like stabby things are happening in the doctor's office. The end! Exclamation point! The preceding program, originally telecast by ABC in New York, has come to you by special video recording. This is ABC, the American broadcasting company. The end credit scroll on this episode of Tales of Tomorrow says that The Little Black Bag was written by Cyril M. Kornbluth, with additional dialogue by Man Rubin. Man Rubin got his start working on some of the really early DC Comics titles during the Julius Schwartz era, including issues of Strange Adventures and Mystery in Space. He adapted several of the stories for Tales of Tomorrow during its run, as well as pitching in an original story or two. He went on to write episodes of Alcoa Theater, The Defenders, The Alfred Hitchcock Hour, Perry Mason, The Fugitive, Mission Impossible, The Mod Squad, Circle of Fear, The Six Million Dollar Man, Mannix, The Bionic Woman, Future Cop, Project UFO, Barnaby Jones, and quite a few others, all the way into the early 1990s. He also wrote a couple of short films produced in the 21st century and spent over a decade teaching screenwriting at USC. We lost Man Rubin in 2013. We'll get into the weeds of major differences between the original text of Kornbluth's story and the various adaptations, but this is really more of a cultural note. This script spends half an hour dancing around the issue of whether or not Fulbright and Angie both have a drinking problem. It's like this was a thing not to be spoken of in the 50s, sort of like how Fulbright always seems to have a cigarette dangling from his mouth, even while he's examining the sick kid. Lit cigarette about an inch away from the kid's face. I mean, I know it was a different time, but let's be real here and step outside of the fictional story. Lit cigarette about an inch from the child actor's face. Wow. Just wow. 
At this early point in the world of television production, things were pretty much being shot as a live stage play in front of cameras. Editing was expensive and time-consuming. As a result, a few things flagged this version of The Little Black Bag as being a work in progress. Dr. Fulbright, for example, appears in the credits as Dr. Full, the character's name in the original short story. Additionally, despite the camera clearly being shown the plaque indicating that the bag hails from the year 2450, Fulbright says, and I quote, By tomorrow, the entire world will know the revolutionary medical power transported to us from the 21st century. What? Is this a blooper for which there couldn't be a retake? Or were changes being made to the script in kind of a scattershot manner? of the unknown season three episode eight the little black bag aired tuesday february 25th 1969 on bbc2 a seedy bar guys in big hats smoking cigars it reeks of organized crime in here at a corner table meet the shifty slightly foreign accented angie quiller and her date dr roger full Washed up, disheveled, and discouraged, he's a doctor who made a mistake costing one of his patients' lives, and now he can't make a living. But things are looking up. He's found an oddly shaped black bag full of medical instruments, and Angie sees a familiar face across the room, a man with whom she apparently had a violent falling out in the past. But she approaches him, almost begging for 500 pounds in cash, which she promises will be returned, doubled, in fact, in just a month. She then lays down the law to Dr. Full. He'll do things her way, or she'll rat him out. It is in this atmosphere of mutual trust and respect that the Full Quiller Clinic is thus founded. Time passes. A lady newspaper reporter pitches her editor on an expose of the Full Quiller Clinic, a place which does plastic surgery, but rumor has it that the doctor there treated a tumor recently, something that's not normally in the cosmetic surgery department. She lands the assignment, fairly certain she'll be exposing a quack doctor fraudulently promising a non-existent cure for cancer. Cut to the future. Blinky lights. A technician with pale purple skin reports that a specific missing medical bag, one which was inadvertently sent back to the past, is returning an odd signal, as if it's in fairly frequent use again. The technician is advised to monitor the bag's signal. Its futuristic technology represents a possible ethical dilemma if it's being used in the 1960s. Meanwhile, in the 1960s, another satisfied customer leaves the Full Quiller Clinic, having had a skin cancer removed. Once the patient has left, the now quite sober Dr. Full remarks that it was a malignant growth and laments the fact that the black bag of medical devices from the future could be really curing people of the big ills, not just largely cosmetic issues. But plastic surgery is a fairly new area, and Angie points out that Full would have drawn too much attention trying to reopen his old general practice. After all, in his heavy drinking days, a patient died in his care. She needs him to just shut up, just shut up, keep doing cosmetic surgery, and she'll keep track of who's paying their bills and keep an eye on the accounting. 
It'd be a perfect system if not for Fool's desire to do greater things for the world. Does Angie want to do greater things for the world? Ha! Hell no. Next patient, please. In walks Miss Flannery, the reporter we met earlier, with a complaint of a persistent backache. She lies down on the table as Dr. Fool and Angie scan her with a strange device attached to some kind of electrical cord, with Fool calling out numbers he reads on gauges on the device and Angie writing them down. Fool returns the device to the black bag, which emits an electronic chime. Miss Flannery lies down and Dr. Fool begins some kind of procedure with futuristic-looking instruments. He spots a fibrosis scar on one of Miss Flannery's lungs and sets about trying to remove it. As Angie starts to say, I hope you know what you're doing, under her breath, because that is totally the sort of thing you say right next to a patient on an operating table who hasn't even been sedated. In mere minutes, it's all done. The fibrosis has been removed permanently. Dr. Full advises Miss Flannery to consult her regular doctor if her back problems persist. Although she has many questions to ask, she is ushered out of the operating room and out of the office. Angie returns, accusing Full of showing off and taking life-or-death chances that could bring their sweet deal crashing down around them. The doctor is confident that if he follows the bag's instructions, he could perform any procedure without fail, not just cosmetic ones. An argument ensues during which Full considers handing the bag over to the Royal College of Medicine. Angie changes her tactic. Hey, let's go get a drink, have lunch... Maybe go back to her place, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. But none of this gets Full's mind off of the greater implications of the bag and its contents. And Miss Flannery? She goes straight to her regular doctor for some x-rays, which reveal that the fibrosis she already knew was on her lung has indeed been removed, and without even so much as a scar. She is stunned. Her doctor is stunned. And her big expose of the Full Quiller Clinic is killed before publication because apparently Dr. Full is the real deal. Later, her doctor gets a visit from Dr. Full, who spills the beans. The bag has a date on it. It's from July 2160. It's a miracle. The two men strike a deal. Full will bring the bag to his new colleague, but he wants to perform a demonstration himself. But that means shutting down the Full Quiller Clinic for the time being. Full returns to the clinic to tell Angie they're shutting down temporarily, but Angie says there's an old woman waiting for her procedure, and she looks rich. What'll one more procedure hurt? Full grudgingly agrees and is in a hurry to perform the procedure. The patient is pleased with the results and has other work she'd like done, maybe as soon as tomorrow. Once they're alone, Dr. Full informs Angie of the agreement he's made to hand the bag over to the proper medical authorities. She grabs it and starts to run for it, but it falls open, scattering instruments everywhere. As Dr. Full tries to pick them up and put everything back in its proper place, Angie grabs one of the instruments and stabs him in the back with it. Back in the future, a signal is received from the bag again. It has been used to commit a murder. The technician monitoring the bag is relieved of his duties and replaced by a colleague who is given orders to kill that bag. Back at the clinic, Angie has apparently gotten rid of any trace of Dr. Full and is trying to take over the clinic herself. 
Her first client is the woman who was there just yesterday to demonstrate the painlessness and harmlessness of the odd-looking instruments to her doubtful client. Angie sticks it right through her own arm, going all the way through and coming out the other side, but with no blood. The patient still isn't convinced. Hey, if it's so harmless, let's see you push that thing into your neck. We see the instruments in the bag glow red-hot and melt down as a scream is heard in the background. It doesn't look like that worked out too well for Angie. The end, question mark? Now to close this evening on to the news from Richard Whitmore. This version of the little black bag is credited on screen as being dramatized by Julian Bond. Ah, uh, Mr. Bond, I expect you to write. And write he did. He was a veteran of adapting classic stories for TV, both anthologies and otherwise. He performed much the same function here that he did for Tales of the Unexpected, Orson Welles' Great Mysteries, and The Rivals of Sherlock Holmes, among others. He also adapted other works of literature into full series in their own right, including The Far Pavilions, The Ruth Rendell Mysteries, Fair Stood the Wind for France, and Love for Lydia, which featured a young Peter Davison as one of its regulars. He also wrote quite a few originals, turning in original scripts for Upstairs, Downstairs, and nearly half the episodes of a 1960 series called Police Surgeon, which starred Ian Hendry. There are two interesting things about Police Surgeon. One, Hendry's character was renamed and he became the star in 1961 of a little show called The Avengers, where his police surgeon character was assisted by a mysterious, possibly dangerous, bowler hat-wearing man named John Steed, played by one Patrick McNee. Yes, before Honor Blackman, before Diana Rigg, John Steed's sidekick was a dude who only slowly came around to the fact that he was now working with some kind of super spy. The other interesting thing about Police Surgeon is that it was created by Sidney Newman, the man often credited for creating Doctor Who. Sidney Newman was also behind Out of the Unknown as a whole, a BBC Two series which was billed as a science fiction and horror version of Armchair Theatre. No, not Jeff Lynne's first solo album after trying to disband ELO, but an anthology of short plays that often dealt in normal domestic issues. Out of the Unknown went further afield than something like Armchair Theatre could, getting into more cosmic and metaphysical areas. The producer of Out of the Unknown was Irene Schubick, who was a protege of Sidney's in much the same way that Verity Lambert had been when she was appointed as the first producer of Doctor Who when that series started. Out of the Unknown began its four-season run in 1965, continuing in 1966, and then taking a break until 1969, when it returned in color. A further season aired in 1971, by which point Irene Schubick had departed, and the show took on more of a supernatural bent than staying its original sci-fi course. Time and the realities of television archiving during this period of British TV have not been kind to Out of the Unknown. The Little Black Bag is one of only two third-season episodes to have survived intact. Quite a bit of the show's first season survives, with each of the subsequent three seasons represented by only a handful of episodes. All of these, plus a few reconstructions using audio recordings and still photos, were released as a DVD box set by the British Film Institute, which, as I record this retrogram in April 2022, went out of print just a few weeks ago. 
The set features an excellent documentary about the series and is well worth tracking down, though doing so probably just became quite a bit more expensive. Out of the Unknown made a name for itself by adapting stories by Asimov, Bradbury, and Cyril Cornbluth's fellow Futurian, Frederick Pohl. It was considered something of a more grown-up alternative to Doctor Who, which is probably why it disappeared after 1971, at a time when Doctor Who itself was aiming for a slightly older audience than it had in the 60s. And in fact, just before he starred in this episode of Out of the Unknown, Emrys Jones, who played Dr. Full, appeared in Doctor Who as the master of the land of fiction in the legendary Patrick Troughton story, The Mind Robber, which used, as a cost-saving measure, repainted robot suits, which had originally been built for an earlier episode of Out of the Unknown. Emrys Jones also appeared in Dixon of Doc Green and episodes of Doomwatch, Zed Cars, and Paul Temple before he died, literally one day before I was born. That's a bit weird. He was only 56. Starring as Angie Quiller is Geraldine Moffat, who was a familiar face on the British stage and screen. On TV, she guest starred in Adam Adamant Lives, Strange Report, the Shagadelic spy series Department S, Paul Temple, UFO, The Persuaders, the Department S spin-off Jason King, and The New Avengers, among many others. You may remember her best from starring in the original Michael Caine version of Get Carter, which also starred Ian Hendry. It's a small island, England. It really is small, but packed with talent. Incidentally, Geraldine Moffat had two sons, Sam and Dan Hauser, who went on to become the founders of Rockstar Games, makers of the controversial Grand Theft Auto series of video games. So, speaking of Angie, no more razors? and the implication that Angie has had to have cosmetic surgery done after suffering some sort of violent attack? I'm not sure why this is in here. It is nothing to do with Cornbluth's original story, and it's a really weird detour. I mean, I, I can see where it's supposed to get us to empathize with Angie and to signal to the audience that she has had past dealings with organized crime, but wow. The whole mob element is weird anyway. If it's supposed to create tension that someone's going to come calling on Angie and Dr. Full for a return on their investment, it's kind of a fail there because once Full is putting the black bag to use, we never hear from the mob characters again, and it's a moot point. I get that the writer adapting the story is trying to put their own unique spin on it, but that was some pretty weird spin. We'll talk more about Angie and her place in the story and her role in the original short story, but for now, we're done with Angie, because the next adaptation of The Little Black Bag does away with her altogether. But first, a word from our sponsor. Ashley Thomas is the nerdy blogger. Ashley has a master's degree in literature and language, as well as a decade's worth of experience in writing for web publications. If you're looking for someone to assist you with copy for your website, blog posts, email campaigns, web store, social media management, or assistance with search engine optimization, Ashley's your gal. Ashley also spends her time writing about film, television, and comic books, contributing to sites such as fangirlish.com and popcultureretrorama.com. You can learn more about Ashley and the work she does at nerdyblogging.wordpress.com, where you can contact her for more information about her writing services. The Nerdy Blogger is proud to be a supporter of thelogbook.com and its podcasts. 
Night Gallery, Season 1, Episode 2, Segment 2, The Little Black Bag, aired Wednesday, December 23, 1970, on NBC. September 2098, a day which will live in infamy. Well, if we actually make it that far, of course. Gillings, a technician in the Time Travel Experimentation Division, reluctantly reports to his superior that a medical bag was accidentally sent back to 1971 during a time travel experiment, and it can't be retrieved. 1971 back alley. Two winos, William Fall and Heppelwhite, get ready to share a liquid lunch. Fall reveals that he went to medical school. He used to be a doctor. But washed up, disheveled, and discouraged, he's a doctor who made a mistake, costing one of his patients lives, and now he can't make a living. As if his luck wasn't already bad enough, Heppelwhite starts downing the whole bottle of wine that Fall just handed him with the intention that they would share it equally. The two men struggle for the bottle, sending it crashing into the wall of the alley. Heppelwhite's pissed that he didn't get to drink at all. Fall, on the other hand, is disappointed that he didn't get to drink any and takes to digging through the trash, where he finds a medical bag. It looks brand new, and it's filled with medical gear both familiar and unfamiliar, though Fall chalks up the unfamiliarity to the fact that he hasn't been a doctor in 20 years. The two drinking buddies, who just met, head to the pawn shop with their lucky find, which must surely be worth two bottles of wine and maybe a shared meal. As they're negotiating with the pawn shop owner, who's only willing to give them $8 for the bag, that's twenty-eight sixty-six adjusted for inflation, a Puerto Rican woman spots fall through the window and barges into the shop. Her child is sick, more like on death's doorstep, to be honest. Dr. Fall, struck with the temptation to once again be a man of medicine, keeps the bag. He quickly diagnoses the kid with a runaway strep infection. The best he can hope for is to make the child comfortable. He goes to open the medical bag. Oh, wait, it's a completely unfamiliar medical bag. But somehow the instruments seem to move his hands instead of the other way around. The bag also contains an instruction chart that makes medicine seem like child's play. Fall quickly figures out what to administer and how much, and suddenly the little girl seems to make a miraculous recovery. Her very grateful mother doesn't have a dime to give Fall, but hey, God bless you, Doc. Dr. Fall is still slowly processing what just happened. That should have been a fatal condition. And the best part of all is, the kid's mother called him Doctor. No one has called him that in two decades. As he looks over the content of the bag, he finds an engraved plaque inside. U.S. patent applied for July 2098. Applewhite doesn't care. If they hurry, they can still pawn that bag for eight bucks worth of bourbon. But Fall isn't listening. At the local homeless shelter, Heppelwhite watches with increasing agitation and impatience as Dr. Fall learns how the bag really works. Cross-indexing the condition with a small control brings up instructions for treatment on a small screen. Instructions so clear even a child could perform the procedures. It could even remove an inoperable cancer. Dr. Fall sees the future of medicine. Heppelwhite sees that this thing could be worth way more than just $8 worth of bourbon. Over the objections of Mr. Ennis, who runs the shelter, Fall rushes upstairs where an old man named Charlie Peterson is bedridden, waiting to die of cancer. 
Fall says he's going to cure Charlie, and Charlie won't even feel any pain. He just has to be still. Mr. Ennis runs to call the police, but by the time a cop shows up, Charlie Peterson is no longer bedridden and no longer has cancer. Dr. Fall has healed him. Back downstairs among the other homeless men, Fall starts curing them of random ailments. Arthritis, you name it, he can cure it. In their bunk room at the shelter, Dr. Fall tells Heppelwhite that he intends to call for a meeting of doctors and scientists, in front of whom he intends to demonstrate the miraculous properties of his newfound medical instruments by sticking a scalpel into his own throat and removing it without having harmed himself. He even begins practicing his speech. This bag could cure all the ills of humanity and should be put to use to benefit the greatest number of people. Does Heppelwhite care? Hell no. He sees dollar signs, millions, maybe tens of millions of them. He wants in. A 50% share of the wealth he's convinced Dr. Fall will make with his find. Heppelwhite grabs one of the instruments and moves menacingly toward Fall. The next morning at a nearby hospital, a group of skeptical doctors impatiently awaits the arrival of Dr. William Fall, a name completely unknown to any of them. Fall has summoned them for a demonstration of a new surgical technique to remove tumors. And in he walks, proud and tall in a new suit. Oh, wait, that's Heppelwhite. But none of these doctors know that. He has the bag. He recites the same speech Dr. Fall recited to the mirror the night before, and then prepares to plunge the scalpel from the future into his own throat before his horrified audience. Back in the future, a signal is received from the bag again. It has been used to commit a murder. Gillings, the technician monitoring the bag, is given orders by his superiors to deactivate the bag with a touch of a button. Back at the hospital, the doctors file out of the conference room, where Heppelwhite has just committed a grisly and very public suicide. As his body is wheeled out under a sheet, some of the doctors can't help but remark on how surprised he seemed when it happened. An orderly wants to know what should be done with Dr. Fall's medical bag, and he's told to throw it in the trash. Before he does so, the orderly can't help but take a peek into the bag, and he sees that the instruments in the bag have melted down. Into the trash goes the bag from the future, and with it, two wasted lives. The end. Period. Dr. Full becomes Dr. Fall here, played by the absolutely magnificent Burgess Meredith, and in the interests of full disclosure, don't expect objectivity from me there. He is one of my favorite American actors ever to ply his craft. Between Serling and Meredith, you know right off the bat, you are probably going to have the most incisively constructed version of this character out of the three interpretations. So let's move on to... Whoa, Angie's had some work done. Okay, Angie's not in this story. Taking her place is Dr. Fall's fellow alcoholic, Mr. Heppelwhite, whose function in the story is obviously the same as Angie's, though obviously the gender change makes it a whole different dynamic. Chill Wills kind of towers over Burgess Meredith physically, so there's a certain physical or at least visual element of implied threat that Heppelwhite has that neither of the previous adaptations Angie's had. There's also some really nice comedy business in that first scene where Dr. Fall keeps almost putting the bottle of wine in Heppelwhite's hands and then starts gesticulating wildly as Heppelwhite reaches out for it, repeatedly snatching it out of his grasp. It's a nice bit of understated physical comedy, and the two actors make it work beautifully. Just very nicely directed and a nice bit of misdirection, giving how dark things are going to get in the story. 
I can't praise Burgess Meredith enough. I mean, just in general, he is amazing here. For the first 20 minutes or so, he's slurring his speech very convincingly. But as he's coming down the stairs with the just-treated Charlie Peterson in tow, he has his dignity back. He's speaking clearly. You see a man who's had a tantalizing glimpse of the best version of himself that he could be, and he wants to be that man all the time. The opening scene in the alley is just kind of a self-contained wonder, like a little stage play, though occasionally a very wordy one, whose writer you can tell is proud of how clever he is. Lines like, I went from a Hippocratic healer to a hypocritical heel, are awfully flowery as far as realism goes, but it's a treat to have an actor of Burgess Meredith's skill saying those lines. It's interesting, in a kind of sociological way, to see the shift in the ethnicity of the sick girl's mother between 1954 and 1970. Tales of Tomorrow made her Italian. Night Gallery makes her Puerto Rican. By the way, I watched this story on the Kino Lorber Blu-ray set of the first season of Night Gallery, and I cannot recommend that to you highly enough. The transfers are gorgeous. They look so sharp that you'd think they were shot in HD last week. At the time I'm recording this, we do not have release dates for the second or third seasons of Night Gallery on Blu-ray, but when those are announced, I'll be there with Dr. Fool's 20 bucks and Dr. Fall's 8 bucks, and hope that inflation will still let me get those Blu-ray sets. They are marvelous and very fitting for a show like Night Gallery, which was frequently impeccably directed. As was often the case with early episodes of Night Gallery, the second hour of the weekly series was split up into multiple stories. The Little Black Bag was preceded by Room with a View, starring Joseph Wiseman and a young Diane Keaton, and was followed by the extremely short and rather silly, surling-written story Nature of the Enemy, starring Joseph Campanella. We'll cover those another time, but as a result of sharing its hour-long time slot with two shorter stories, The Little Black Bag winds up with exactly the same amount of screen time to tell its story that both of the previous adaptations had, a little under 30 minutes. Three different tellings of the same story. Which one comes out on top, though? Maybe before we ask that, we should ask which is truest to the original text. If you're looking for absolute fidelity to the story as originally written by Kornbluth, all three flunk this test. Serling's adaptation for Night Gallery comes the closest, but is still quite a ways off. Kornbluth's original story opened with a future society divided into elites with advanced intelligence, a larger group of average intelligence, with the largest portion of the populace having well below average intelligence. There's further elaboration on this system before we get into the medical bag being sent back in time, more or less as a prank. Serling's telling of the tale is the only one that starts in the future. The Tales of Tomorrow version never even visits the future, while Out of the Unknown's telling of the story kind of reluctantly visits the future. I think they knew they didn't have the budget to make it a very convincingly futuristic setting. Night Gallery really didn't either. Its take on futuristic really just meant more metal and glass furniture than usual, and both leaned heavily on that old standby for future technology, lots of blinky lights. But none of the three partake of the original short story's origin story for how the bag arrives from the future to the present day. In all three cases, it's just already there. 
while Out of the Unknown could barely cobble together a control room of the future, where it does excel is in the design of the futuristic medical gear. A lot of screen time is given over to the operation that changes the good doctor's mind about simply doing cosmetic procedures with the medical kit. And I've got to say, for the BBC in 1969, there are bits of it that are convincingly alien, or at least futuristic. Stuff like syringes and so on, you can tell more or less what they are. But there are other tools in the kit that are like space scalpels or something. And then there's a thing that looks kind of like a space retractor, which is genuinely a bit creepy, because from the angle it's shot from, you really can't tell what it's doing. It's nicely done and more convincingly futuristic than either Tales or Night Gallery, which used very modern-day medical gear probably to make sure the audience had a handle on what was going on. Another part of the original story that all three versions kind of avoid is that Angie uses another instrument to dispose of Dr. Full's body without a trace. This is kind of implied in the Out of the Unknown version, and perhaps in the Night Gallery version, but Tales of Tomorrow leaves the body right there to make it clear to the audience that Angie won't be getting away with anything. Now let's talk about Angie and Heppelwhite. Regardless of the form this character takes on TV, none of the three productions stick to the original text on this one. In Gornbluth's original story, Dr. Full is quite single. The neighbor who brings her daughter to Dr. Full's care brings her sister with her, and the sister discovers where and when the bag comes from, threatening to expose Full as a fraud unless he lets her manage his practice on her terms. And that sister character, that's Angie. This is a really weird and rather significant alteration to the story, though the necessities of TV storytelling may have something to do with it. If Angie or Heppelwhite isn't there with Dr. Full from the beginning of the story, there is nobody to bounce dialogue off of to expose Full's background, his fall from grace, and so on. Aside from Angie's entry point into the story, Tales from Tomorrow and Out of the Unknown get the character somewhat right. Tales is closest to the original text in this regard, while Out of the Unknown takes more liberties with Angie's origins and makes things kind of weird. She's manipulative, she's got mob ties, she's totally okay using sex as a weapon, she's vaguely Eastern European, maybe Italian, so... BBC Angie is kind of icky, painted in shades of xenophobia with a small order of slut-shaming as a side dish. Neither the original story nor its first two television adaptations age well in that regard. Angie is shrill. Angie is devious. Angie is evil. Hell, the BBC decided that Angie's a foreign Jezebel into the bargain. It's really not a good look. This is why Serling's sweeping rewrite of the story actually does it a lot of favors. Fall is a more sympathetic character, and Burgess Meredith, well, I mean, holy cow, it's Burgess Meredith. His empathy for the character just oozes from the screen, although I will admit that I would be up for Burgess Meredith sitting on an empty stage and doing a dramatic reading of the phone directory. And while you feel for Heppelwhite, too, Chill Wills does a fantastic job of making sure the audience sees the wheels turning in Heppelwhite's head. By introducing a time delay between Dr. Fall's off-screen death and Heppelwhite's fatal demonstration of the medical gear on himself, Serling makes it more of a twist ending, indeed one worthy of the Twilight Zone. So the night gallery version of The Little Black Bag strays furthest from the original text of the story, but it is also the most dramatically effective telling of it. And what is Cyril Kornbluth saying to us here? 
From the original short story through TV adaptations in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, he seems to be making an argument for decoupling the necessities of life from someone else's need to make a profit from it. This gets into arguments about whether or not health care should be considered a universal right, and those arguments are not only bigger than this podcast, but it really shouldn't be an argument at all. The moment people are left to die because they can't pay a bill, you have a monstrous system that needs to be torn down and overhauled. Once the dollar is worth more than a life, you have a serious problem. Cyril Cornbluth caught on to that from over 70 years ago, and that was before we had the sheer weight of medical and insurance bureaucracy that we do now, which springs largely from the creation of health management organizations during the Nixon administration. If people are going to die for not being able to pay medical bills, or if people are going to die while waiting for the bureaucracy to get it in gear and do something, that's a medical system that is no longer helping people. And what is medicine for? This is a system that makes a mockery of the oath to do no harm. Dr. Full, or Fulbright, or Fall, wants to bring the healing implications of the bag to the entire world. With the proper resources, the tools in the bag might be duplicated, or at least managed benevolently, hopefully for the betterment of all, though the fact that there's only one bag makes that seem like an overly optimistic wish. But it's one that the doctor wants to see happen, until in steps Angie, or Heppelwhite, a character personifying the inevitability that someone's less worried about human suffering and is more concerned with making a buck off the deal. Kornbluth clearly expected that side of society to stab the do-gooder optimists in the back. Wouldn't it be neat to live in a world where a storyteller like Cyril Kornbluth didn't have to expect that worst outcome? The depressing thing is, his message was repeated across three decades, and apparently it still hasn't sunk in. Retrogram Podcast was researched, written, and hosted by Earl Green. This episode is dedicated in loving memory to Puck, my big black cat who would not fit in a little black bag. The show's theme music was composed and performed by Jazar and licensed under Creative Commons. You can find his work at betterwithmusic.com and at freemusicarchive.org. Free Music Archive is also home to lots of other great music. Additional music in this episode was by Dr. Frankenstein, Samarite, Andrew Howes, and Timo Komulainen, also licensed under Creative Commons. If you like Retrogram, give a big thanks to the logbook.com's Patreon supporters. If you love Retrogram, become one of them. Every little bit helps keep the logbook.com and its podcasts and videocasts going. You can be like Philip, Kevin, Estoroslovak, Ferg, Darwin, Cindy, Paul, Mark, Charles, and Ashley, and sign up as a patron at patreon.com slash the logbook. If monthly contributions aren't your thing, we totally get that too. You can buy us a coffee at ko-fi.com slash the logbook. You can also support the site by buying t-shirts, other clothing, and household goods, even face masks because, you know, some of us are still wearing those, and more from our store at thelogbook.redbubble.com. 
with designs featuring everything from classic Odyssey 2 games and classic space missions to, you guessed it, hashtag floaty robot buddies. You can order all sorts of things from Amazon and eBay through our affiliate links at thelogbook.com slash store. And if you like watching stuff, feel free to sign up for Paramount Plus through our links. If you decide to stay as a subscriber, that helps the logbook and retrogram out a lot. Retrogram is a production of thelogbook.com, and don't worry, the next show will be back in our normal wheelhouse of the 1970s and 80s. Malfunction. There are no longer system restrictions on time travel. Wait, what? What?